0: but for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning, New Life family. How we doing this morning? Man, I wish we could have gotten nicer weather for today in the park. It's amazing, isn't it? We're continuing our series uh, called Kingdom Culture, where we're looking at the different parables of Jesus in the gospels. And if you're familiar with the story of the Bible at all, you know that Jesus, one of his primary ways of teaching about his kingdom and his family was through telling stories. And so this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question that I think is going to divide the park into two very distinct groups, because there's nothing like a little division on some Sunday morning, right? And so I'm going to ask you this question here this morning. How many of you think that tipping culture has gotten a little bit out of hand? How many of you think, <laughs> yeah, I see some hands raised there. How many of you think that the, the amount and the frequency with which we're asked to tip for every service provided has gotten a little bit excessive more recently? I see some hands raised high out there. I want to take you to a familiar experience that probably all of us know well. You're checking out at a fast food restaurant or at a coffee shop. Your your coffee is steaming, it is ready to be drank, your burrito smells so good and it's just screaming, eat me, and you are checking out. And you go and you swipe your card or you put the chip in, and then the cashier, the barista, the person checking you out has a well-rehearsed motion and they aggressively flip the iPad your way and they say the famous line, it's just gonna ask you a few questions. Right, We all know this experience, right? It's just going to ask you a few questions. And I, I got to tell you, like, more recently, I've been asked to tip at Qdoba, been asked to tip at Mr. Car Wash for an automatic car wash. Pretty much everywhere is asking you to tip right now, right? It's like, Aspen, I'm not going to tip you 40% for handing me a muffin, OK? Now, here's the deal. I just made everybody in the service industry really, really mad right now. <laughs> I try to be generous when I can. And I think that's a, a good principle to live by. But the reason that I share this with you is I think that represents a really interesting kind of thing in our culture right now, where we're asked, what is actually fair, right? What's, what's fair to tip of my hard-earned money for someone else? If you work in the service industry, maybe you ask the question, I, I work hard, right? It's, it's fair that I'm compensated for, for what I do, and so a tip is perfectly reasonable, and, and we live in this tension of what is fair? And if, if you think about our lives, we place a lot of value on fairness, whether we recognize it or not, don't we? We fight for things like fair wages for a day's work, fair opportunities, We even value fairness in our relationships and our marriages, right? Anybody have the scoreboard that you keep with your spouse? (laughs) Some of you are like, no, you're a better person than I am then. Right? We have this, this scoreboard that we keep in our relationships. Like, I did this for you. The least you could do is this for me. Some of us value fairness of outcome. We place a high value on fairness, I pulled up some statistics here for different generations. You know that 32% of Gen Z believe that they are the hardest working generation of all the generations? So long as the work conditions are fair. That's the caveat of that. Here's one, I'll dog on my generation a little bit. 40% of millennials believe they deserve to be promoted every two years regardless of their job performance. I deserve it because I exist. That's fair. Here's the last one. 65% of boomers are worried about the future of Social Security and retirement. Right, I worked, I paid into Social Security. It is fair, I earned it. Right, every single one of us, we value fairness in different ways in different forms in our lives and of course growing up our mamas all taught us life is not fair right life isn't fair and so I think this morning an important and pressing question for each and every one of us to ask is this is God fair is God fair Is the kingdom of God fair? Is this family that he's created defined by fairness, is God fair? And I would say the short answer to that is no. He's not fair. And yet he offers us something better than fairness. And I think if we're willing to take hold of that, what he offers us in place of fairness, it will be transform our lives. And when I look at my own life and the things that I value and the things that I work for, I believe that this idea that he offers something better than fairness can powerfully shape the type of people that we become. And so if you have your, your Bible with you or your phone Bible with you, I want to invite you uh, to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 is a story, a parable, where Jesus really answers this question, is God fair, head on. And before we jump into the text as you're turning there, I just want to set the scene for what's happening here as Jesus tells the story. You see, right before Jesus goes into the story, the story of workers in the vineyard that's become known to be called, there's an interaction that Jesus has with a young rich guy. And this rich guy has all of this wealth and all of this stuff. And he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, look at what you're holding, which for you is your wealth and your possessions. Be willing to drop that, to let that go. And then you can come and follow me and you will inherit eternal life. And if you know how that story goes in Matthew 19, you know that the guy is sad because he has so much stuff, and he's not willing to drop it, and he's not willing to let it go. And so he walks away sad. And this interaction leads into a conversation between Jesus and his closest friends, his disciples. Because in this moment, after his disciples witness him have this interaction with this rich guy, they begin thinking, man, Jesus, we're looking pretty good right now. Because we did what you just asked that rich guy to do. We did drop everything to follow you. And so what Peter does, it's always Peter. He's the mouthy one. He goes up to Jesus and he basically says, what reward is in store for those of us who did leave everything behind for you? What is fair for those of us who left everything behind to follow you, Jesus? And I love Jesus because he responds with this story in Matthew 20, verse one and two here says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And so here you have Jesus setting up this story, this scene of this wealthy landowner, and he goes and he gets laborers for his vineyard. And what you need to know about grape vineyards and times of harvest during this time is it was a a short window to harvest these grapes in his vineyard. And so he's on a time crunch here. He's on a timeline. And so he goes and he gets laborers. And laborers in this day would be found at the labor market. It's kind of like the equivalent of a farmer's market. We have one that sets up right here in town. And this was the place where wealthy people would go if they needed somebody to come and work for them for a day. And so imagine the scene, this wealthy landowner, he goes to the labor market. This is 6 AM. It's a 6 AM to 6 PM shift. It's 12 hours long. And he goes to the labor market, and he finds some able-bodied people. And what you need to know about this labor market is this labor market was filled with the poorest of the poor. It was filled with people who really didn't have options. It was filled with people who had no social safety net, no savings, no promise of food for that night or a day's work for the next day. This was one day at a time hiring. And what you were offered is a day wage, a denarius. And this would be enough money for you to put food on your table to feed your family for that night. And what was so interesting about this story, even as Jesus opens is he is painting this wealthy landowner as someone who is outrageously generous because he goes to a labor market and he offers a fair compensation for a day's work, offers a fair wage to people. There was no recourse for him not to pay them. There was no like, legal system that would have protected these people in the labor market. And so even by the promise of paying them, Jesus is saying, this guy is really really generous and so he invites them to a shift of 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and you have to imagine like the ones that got chosen are like yes we're we get to go and we're going to work 12 hours and we're going to have food for our families that night and and we're going to be settled for this one day and so they got they got to be excited And so they go to this vineyard, and they work for this landowner, and about three hours in, as the sun is rising and it's starting to get warmer, at 9 a.m., this landowner begins to look around and he begins to think to himself, man, I don't have enough people to do all of this harvest. I need more workers. And so what does he do? He goes right back to the labor market, right back to the place where he found the original workers. And at 9 a.m., He finds more workers and he says, come work in my vineyard and I'll pay you a fair wage. Now, if you're one of the 9 a.m. workers, you're one of the people getting invited into the vineyard at this point, what would be a fair wage for you? What would be fair? Three quarters day work, three quarters of the full day's wage, right? That's fair. And so they come, and and they work, and then the the landowner once again realizes around noon, man, this is a bigger job than I thought. And so he goes again, and he gets more workers, and they come, and they work half of the day, 12 to 6, right? And I'll pay you a fair wage, same promise. And then once again, he realizes he still doesn't have enough workers, so he goes at 3 p.m. This guy has really underestimated how much labor he needs to get the job done. And then finally... With one hour left in the day, at the literal 11th hour, 5 p.m., he realizes I still do not have enough workers to complete the job, and so he goes once again back to the labor market to invite another round of workers. Put yourself in this last group's shoes. Why would you even still be there hoping for a job at that point? Was it you didn't want to return home empty-handed? Was it just the smallest glimpse of hope that maybe, just maybe, you could get some food for your family or a scrap of food? You certainly weren't going to be able to eat. But maybe if you got even just an hour in, you could find just scraps for your kids. And so this landowner invites this last round of people. And I have to imagine that even after the walk back to the, the vineyard, that. This is probably less than a full hour's worth of work. And, and so this group works for an hour or less in his vineyard, and then the landowner lines them all up. And if I'm one of those last workers, I'm thinking, man, I'm going to get one twelfth of a day's wage. And I want you to see what the landowner does for this last group here in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 20. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, Each of them received a denarius. Are you kidding me? A full day's wage for an hour's worth of work? You have got to be kidding me with this, wealthy landowner. And so if I'm the person that's been there since 6 a.m., if I'm the one that has blood, sweat, and tears poured into this guy's vineyard, and I've been working 12 hours, in this moment, I'm thinking to myself, man, if they get paid one denarius, I wonder how much I'm going to get paid. I wonder how much I'm owed. Two, three, four, five days' wages? Right, this guy is generous. And And then what unfolds is not exactly that. Watch what he says next here. Now when those hired first came, when those who had been working 12 hours, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius, the exact same wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And I love this last question here that he asks. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Are you bitter that I am so generous? So the last will be first, and the first, last. This story at its core is profoundly unfair. Right? If you're the 12-hour worker, if you're the person that's been laboring and pouring into this guy's vineyard for 12 hours, this feels profoundly unfair. But I believe there is a human dilemma that Jesus is presenting us with here in this story, and it's this. That God's grace eradicates my petty vision of fairness. That the grace and the mercy of God eradicates my small, myopic, petty view of what is fair and what is not fair. That in other words, fairness is way too low of a standard for the way in which God operates. It's way too low of a standard in which his kingdom is founded on. I was, uh, I'm was i gonna throw myself under the bus for a moment here. Um, I was at Panera uh, working earlier this week. I was literally typing the sermon, and I like to work in public settings, especially as I'm writing sermons, because I can watch all of the weird people around me, and like people watch, and it, I don't know, it just helps me. I'd much rather do that than in a stuffy office somewhere. So I was writing the sermon at Panera, And I'm sitting there typing, and I'm like, God, I I need a really, I need a story right here. And oh, God, he's got a sense of humor. He gave me a story. See, the guy sitting right behind me as I'm working and typing is talking on a video call into his headphones. And he is talking so dang loud. And I am getting so annoyed at this point. So I put in my noise-canceling headphones. And I, I keep trying to work. And he's speaking so loud into his headphones that they are like I can even hear them through my headphones. He's this loud, and I don't know what he's saying. I'm not really paying attention to that. But I am shooting him a few dirty looks as he's speaking so loud. Kidding. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so as this is going on, and he continues to just speak loudly and loudly, I'm getting more and more annoyed, and I'm thinking to myself, this is so rude. This is not courteous. This is not fair. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, why couldn't you have just moved? I don't have to move. He should move. This isn't fair, right? Like this, is, like, this is not courteous. This is rude. This is whatever. And I just begin getting kind of annoyed as I'm doing the Lord's work and writing this sermon here. And so a few hours pass. I'm still writing. He's done with his video call, and he goes up, and he gets a refill. And he comes back past my table and he sees my Bible, and he sees my commentaries laying out, and he goes, are you a pastor? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a pastor. He goes, well, wh- where are you a pastor at? And he goes, I am a pastor in Wayland, Michigan. He goes, no way. I live in Wayland, Michigan. I said, of course you do. <laughs> and, uh, and so then he begins sharing with me about the reason that he's here. And I'm not kidding. You cannot make this stuff up. He is a missionary church planter in Africa, and he is living in Wayland right now to try to learn things about farming practices so that he can bring these farming practices back to Africa and help support local farmers and businesses there to help reduce poverty in Africa. And it gets better. This guy has been a part of over a thousand church plants in Africa and his his job is literally to be supporting and resourcing pastors. He has literally witnessed in Ethiopia alone, Protestant Christianity going from 17% to 25% of the population. Like this guy has seen so much of God's grace at work in his life and the worst part of all on my end, the reason he's speaking so loud into his headphones is because he's literally on video calls with pastors in Africa speaking about how he can support them. Talk about a foot-and-mouth type moment for your pastor. And as I begin reflecting on that, God really spoke to me. And what he said to me is he said, stop missing out on my gift of grace to the world because you are so obsessed with fairness. You're so obsessed with the quid pro quo and every part of your life being worked out and you having to see that like everything is equal and all scales are balanced all the time. And I think some of us walk through this life and we are missing out on the grace and the generosity of God because we are so obsessed with our own petty vision of fairness and God is coming to us and he's asking us are you bitter that I am so generous with my grace it's another way of him asking are you mad because I am good are you mad because I am holy and even in my holiness I am generous with my grace towards people who do not deserve it see I think that's the heart of what grace is that at its core, I often look at the grace of God and I think to myself, man, they don't deserve that grace because I'm so obsessed with my need for fairness. And yet God's grace is constantly, overwhelmingly, frequently outweighing my petty vision of fairness. Paul one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament, he words it this way in Romans chapter two, verses four. He says this, to religious people who are uh, offended by God's grace, he says, do you show contempt, you show anger for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? By definition, the grace of God is offered to people who are undeserving. If God only offered his grace to people who were deserving, we have a word for that. Fairness. But that's not how he operates. He offers his grace to those who have come at the 11th hour, who did not work, who did not earn it, who did not labor and toil for the 12 hours, and he offers them a full day's wage. See, I think for us here, it's not so much God's grace towards the poor man on the street that that upsets us or offends us or agitates our sensibilities. I think for many of us, the most undeserving of grace in our own lives is the person who has the thing that we want so badly that we don't have. God, I've followed you for so many years of my life. Why do they have fill in your own blank. Why do they have good health when I'm wrestling every single day with my sickness? Why do they not seem to live with the consequences of sin and I'm here riddled with the consequences every single day of their sin against me? God, why? Church, who in your life, if they were to show up to new life, next week would you resent most being here? What's their name? What's their story? Like the grace of God at its core, it offends us. If you can't think of a specific person, think of a specific kind of person. Who does your Christianity insulate you most from? Who does your Christianity make you feel so safe from? Scroll through your Facebook feed. You'll find him quick. That is exactly the person that Jesus is pressing us on in this story. That is exactly the type of person, the 11th hour type of person that Jesus is calling us to look through the lens and see his grace. He asks you and I the same question. Are you mad that I am good? You see, God's love and his grace is directed towards the people that I feel are the most repellent and undeserving and annoying and embarrassing type of people. That's who his grace is directed towards. And I think we need to ask the question, what do we do with this offense then in our lives? Because it doesn't remove the very real pain that some of us and the very real wrong that's been done against us. What do we do with this sense of offense that so many of us live with, with how unfair the world is? Well, I think it begins by acknowledging who we are in this story that Jesus shares. So I wanna take just a moment and speak to those of you here who may not consider yourself a Christian, maybe you've been hurt by the church, maybe you're skeptical of faith or you're indifferent towards God. And I just wanna speak to you just for a moment here. Because there's something about church people that, that maybe is helpful for you to understand. See, I grew up in the church. My whole life, I, can't, I, like, I swear I was born in a church. I, I've, I know the Christian lingo, and I know the Christian weird subculture stuff, and, and I know that world, and I know Christians. And, and here is what we Christians who have been Christians for a long time tend to do when we read a story like this. We tend to automatically place ourselves in the role of the workers who have been there all day long. The 6 a.m. worker. God, I give, and I serve, and I, you know, don't do this. You can list all of the behaviors that you do. But what if, what if not a single person sitting in this park is a 6 a.m. worker? What if not a single person in this church is one of the 6 a.m. workers? What if you and I actually inhabit the most distasteful role in this story? See, nobody wants to think of themselves as the latecomers in God's kingdom. But what if Jesus wants us to see ourselves as exactly that? The 11th hour workers. The ones who came in at 5 p.m. and got paid a full day's wage for one hour's worth of laboring and work. God's grace is so scandalous, and it's so unfair, and yet when you look at the story of Scripture, I believe that Jesus doesn't want us to see ourselves as the the 6 a.m. worker, but rather as the 11th hour worker. See, God's vision of, of grace eradicates our need for fairness. I want to take you back to the beginning of the story of Genesis, and I just want to walk you through what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. See, God, in his mercy and his grace, created the world, and he placed a man and a woman named Adam and Eve into a garden, and out of outrageous grace, out of an outpouring of his grace towards two people who hadn't sinned, but still, you can't say they deserved it, right? They were just mere mortal, they were just mere people created in the image of God, raised up from from the dust, and yet God, in his infinite grace, chooses to give them an out, give them a choice. He places them in this amazing garden, in this amazing setting, but he will not coerce anybody to love him. And so in the middle of the garden, he places a tree, a tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, you have this garden, and by the way, this is not a small garden. This isn't like a Wayland City Park-sized garden. Best estimates are like this is a small state size of a garden okay so so he says you can eat of all of the trees in the garden some estimate this is the size of Rhode Island as a garden okay you can eat of everything else but there is one tree there is one crop in the middle of the garden that you can't eat of don't eat of that and I've given you free will to choose whether or not you want to eat of that or you don't because I love you enough to give you a choice to give you an out and what do Adam and Eve do of course they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They choose to reject God. Now what would be fair of God to do in that moment was would be for him to keep his word for their lives to be taken from them instantly. But I want to remind you fairness is not the standard by which God operates. Graces And so in his infinite mercy and his grace, he comes to the two people who had just broken his heart, who had just hurt him, who had just done him wrong, who lived unfairly towards him. And what does he do? He offers them mercy. He promises one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. One whose grace would be enough to restore what was broken and stolen from God in the garden. And here's the thing, Adam and Eve's story is not unique to them. What well, we believe as, as the church is, what I believe as a follower of Jesus is that their story is every single one of our stories on repeat. That every single nation, every single generation, every single empire, every single individual person who has ever lived is just living the story of Adam and Eve on repeat, choosing with our lives to reject God. Choosing to turn our backs from him. It is the natural default of the world that we live in and you can't wonder why I Mean look at the world. It's so broken There's so many parts of it that are so dark and so it's easy to want to take matters into our own hands or take the shortcut or have the last word or want to have Everything be balanced and everything be fair on our timeline in a way that we can exactly see it work itself out and yet God looks at humanity and he sees the same story on repeat. He sees his children, the nation of Israel, over and over again, constantly rejecting him, constantly grumbling against him, constantly straying, constantly running the other way, constantly worshiping idols in the midst of exile and slavery. This is their constant default. They're leaving and they come back. They leave and they come back over and over and over again. And fairness would be God just saying, I'm done with the whole lot of them. I want nothing to do with them. But he didn't choose fairness. He chose grace. And this is the story of every empire. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of Babylon. It's the story of Assyria. It's the story of the Roman Empire. It's the story of America. It's the story of every single family and every single individual here. Romans 6 says, You want your fair wage? the wages of every single one of our lives is is death and separation from God. That's the wage of our lives. And I think if we had a glimpse of how holy God is, we would understand why that's the case. That he is so holy and he is so righteous and he is so separate and above and beyond us. Yeah, our rejection of him does warrant separation from him. And so what happens is that's not where the story ends. See, Romans 6 says, The fair wages of your life is death, but God's not fair, he's generous. And so those wages for our lives were paid for when God sent his one and only son, Jesus, who came and he lived a perfect life. Talk about someone who was treated unfairly. Talk about someone who was treated unjustly. The God of the universe took on human form and wore diapers. I don't know if they had diapers back then, but wore diapers, I'm guessing, in some capacity. And walked among people and got his feet dirty and dirt under his fingernails. And by the way, was a day laborer, much like the people in the story. And the God of the universe came in human form and lived a perfect life that we could not live and died a criminal's death that we deserved for constantly choosing to reject God. And so the hope of the story is that while the wages of our sin, the, the just desert that we deserve is death, there's a second part to the story. And it's this, but the gift, <laughs> the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is his mercy and his grace in action. That Jesus who lived a perfect life and died a criminal's death was was raised to life once again he was resurrected and don't miss this this is the most important part here the wage that he earned is available to you he is the 6 a.m. worker not you not me jesus is the 6am worker who blood sweat tears toiling torment torture death took on all of it the entire weight of what we deserved and he lived the life that we could not live he actually modeled what it looks like to to live a life that chooses wholeheartedly to accept god and his rule and his reign because he was fully god and what's so beautiful about the story is that we get to be the benefactors of God's outrageous generosity. That you and I, we get to be paid the wage that he earned, which is the wage of eternal life. And here's what we know. There will come a day when the scales are balanced. God is, may not be fair, but he is just. And there will come a day when every wrong is made right. When every broken person, broken thing is made whole. Where every sickness is healed. Broken relationship restored. Scripture has this beautiful vision of he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more mourning or death or sorrow. But until that day, Until the day when he separates out those who have put their faith and trust in him from those who have not. We live by grace and grace alone. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says this For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, this is not your own laboring, this is not your own earning. It is the gift of God. It's not because you worked 12 hours in the vineyard. It's because they're one who already has. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. Maybe you're here this morning, and and this is the first time you've heard this laid out in this way. And I just say that Jesus actually asks us to respond to his grace that he lays out, that he is the 12-hour worker in the vineyard, and the full day's wage is available to you here at the 11th hour. And So the single most important question that you could ask with your life, the single most important question that I could ask or any of us could ask with our lives is this. What will I do with this unfair gift of grace? What will I do with it? Will I continue believing that I've earned what I have? Will I continue fighting for this elusive vision of fairness and everything having to work itself out? Or will I be a person that is marked by unfair grace, outrageous generosity, and kindness for a God who gave it all for us? See, the the only fitting response to this kind of grace is going right back to the rich young guy at the beginning of the story, to lay our lives down, to offer what we have in our hands to him, and say, God, take it, transform it. God, this sin area of my life that is unaligned with your word and, and what you've spoken, take it. You can have it, I repent of it. God, this area of stubbornness or selfishness or this need to have the last word, take it. You can have it, it's not mine anymore. God, my my faithfulness, my life, every breath I breathe, take it, it's yours. See, my faithfulness and my repentance and my surrender are not merit badges that put me at the front of the line in God's kingdom. My faithfulness and my repentance and my offering everything back to him is the only fitting response to his outrageous generosity and grace in my life. I received Jesus for the first time when I was five years old. I was baptized when I was nine years old. And I'll stand up here today and tell you that There is not a single day of my life that goes by where I'm not reminded that it is all His grace. That I don't need His grace decades later any less. If anything, I need it more. If anything, I grow in an awareness of my need for it. So for you, maybe you're here and you're thinking to yourself, will they actually take anyone here? The answer is yes. And if you ever doubt that, you're here, aren't you? And so am I. And that's the gospel. So if you've never taken hold of that grace for your life, if you've never offered your life, if you've never dropped what's in your own hand for the sake of him and his glory and his riches and his grace, can I invite you to do that with me this morning? What I want to do is is just pray a prayer. We call this the sinner's prayer. It's the way, according to Romans 10, that we acknowledge with our own mouths and our own hearts that Jesus is Lord, that our life belongs to him, and that God raised him from the dead. We confess our sins, and we drop what's in our hand, and we offer it to him, and we call that salvation. So if that's you, I want to invite you just to pray this in your own heart alongside me. Pray this prayer in your own heart and soul, and then heaven will celebrate alongside all of us those who have chosen to take hold of his unfair mercy and grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that fairness is not the standard by which you operate. We thank you that you are so gracious. And merciful and generous towards even 11th hour workers like us and father with my own life I acknowledge that I am a sinner that if given the choice on my own I will reject you again and again and again but you came and you gave me a path to freedom And so God, I declare with my heart that you are Lord, that you are master of my life. And I believe that you died a perfect, or you lived a perfect life and died a horrendous death so that I could have eternal life in you. Jesus, this morning, I claim that, I take hold of that, and I accept your free gift of salvation. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.